The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, November the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap-up of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Pat Lee, our political editor, and Jack Organ-Jones from our political staff. Uh, good day to you both. Afternoon, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. How are you? I'm not so bad, actually, partly because it's Friday. So, Jack, breaking news at lunchtime today on Friday. A Supreme Court judgment has just landed, which has some implications for the government's legislative programme. Yes, so this relates to the uh, rather... Um unwieldy named uh, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, CETA, between the EU and Canada. And uh, bear with me because uh, I acknowledge that trade policy is fundamentally boring, but there is an an important political element to this. The um, ratification of CETA was something that uh, a couple of Green Party TDs, Patrick Costello and Nessa Horgan, um, had a major issue with to the point where uh, Patrick Costello took a High Court and now Supreme Court challenge over the uh, capacity of the government to legislate and to uh, ratify the uh, the trade deal uh, via a Dáil vote, which he has this morning won uh, by a 4-3 majority. The Supreme Court ruled that the proposed ratification of CETA is unconstitutional as Irish law now stands. So um, one of the interesting folds to this is that while they have ruled that it is, it is unconstitutional in its current form, they have also offered a kind of map in which, uh, by, by which the government might be able to kind of legislate by um, passing amendments to something called the Arbitration Act. So therefore, they could potentially pass these amendments and that would in turn clear the way to a, a doll vote that the, um, that the Supreme Court would not find unconstitutional, thereby in violating the, the, the need for a potentially divisive referendum. So I suppose the, the question as it currently stands is... Will the government go for a referendum on this? Uh, it, it, it only having happened a couple of hours ago, the, the readings on this are, are very preliminary, but certainly senior people across the coalition that I've been talking to, there's no appetite for a referendum on this. They view it as something that could potentially just become a proxy vote on the government, an opportunity to give the government a kicking, and something that would play out in what they see as, as reductive sound, sound bites and would mobilise people against the government and, and something that the government will be probably likely to lose. And therefore, I, I sense that their preferred option would be to pass these amendments and to kind of get around the Supreme Court ruling through legislation. That would, unfortunately, uh, while it may be simple from a, a legal point of view, uh, because the, the Supreme Court has, has offered this avenue, more or less, the the, the politics of it would be, I, I sense, a little bit tricky. And um, by the time that, you know, any doll vote on these amendments was to come to pass, you'd have to imagine that both Nasser Horgan and Patrick Costello will have served their time outside the, the Green Party Parliamentary Party, which they're currently outside on another issue relating to the National Maternity Hospital, and they will have rejoined. You would have to imagine they would vote against this again. And then the question would be whether anyone would join them in voting against it, whether any of the kind of more middle ground Greens would would also vote against it. And then it would, it would pose a, a very tricky question for the government. A, could it, could it win the vote? And, and B, if it were to win the vote, at, at what cost? And would it see its, its parliamentary majority further eroded? So it's, a, it's, it's, it's an important 
ruling that is about a perhaps uninteresting topic, but that is politically potentially quite a big story. You really did your best to make it as interesting as possible, and it turned out more interesting than I expected it to be at the start. By only talking about the politics and not the trade <laughs> policy. Indeed, Pat, I want, to, I want to move on to another subject, which is that the backdrop to you know political events across the water over the last um, over the last few weeks, and indeed perhaps the absence of political events north of the border. Is there beneath all that vague prospect of some kind of landing spot for a resolution of the Northern Ireland Protocol out there somewhere? I think there is, Hugh. Yeah, and we've seen last night at the British Irish Council in Blackpool there was what appeared to be a fairly cordial meeting between the Prime Minister, new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and uh, Michal Martin, uh, who are both attending uh, the event. Should be noted that the the signal of Rishi Sunak attending the thing because the last several prime ministers haven't bothered to attend uh, these events is, I think, intended and taken uh, as a signal from Downing Street that they really are um, uh, that 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 they really are keen to achieve a resolution uh, by negotiation of the difficulties over the uh, over the Northern Ireland Protocol. If there is a landing ground, it seems to me, and there's a lot of detail yet to be worked out, but if there is a landing ground, it is some sort of light touch application of the present protocol. Now, the EU has signalled that it is willing to consider such such a deal to the extent that it would eliminate uh, almost all of the checks that are currently taking place and that are so antagonising unionists and elements within the British government. I think that certainly a light touch implementation of the protocol would be fine by Dublin. It seems to me it would be probably fine by Brussels. Uh, I think Sunak indicating that he wants a negotiated solution suggests that you know he can at least hover around that sort of landing ground. I I guess the big question on it is uh, whether it would satisfy. The DUP. It won't satisfy some of the harder edges of unionism who will not be satisfied unless the protocol is gotten rid of completely. And that's not really on the cards, and nor is that the British government's ask. But the question is could a, a an almost invisible Irish Sea border, could that be palatable to the DUP? And even if it wasn't, would the British government sign up to it in the hope that it would essentially corner the DUP and leave them with no option? That is unclear uh, at the moment. And I don't think that there is an expectation, certainly in Dublin and Brussels, that we are nearing resolution on this. Mara Sefcovic said the other day that really this could be solved in a couple of weeks, but I don't think anybody really expects it uh, to be. People who are involved in the process have said to me that really the, you know, the new real deadline on this is uh, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which doesn't happen until next April. And actually those in the know, and I've seen some coverage of this in the paper over the last 20, our paper over the last 24 hours, they said that was always the deadline. You know, it was the real deadline underlying all this stuff that's been going on over the last few months. Yeah, well, look, if there's one thing that we know about this whole process is that deadlines can move. But obviously, that event is not going to move. Whether it's doubling as a real deadline or not moves, I guess we'll have to 
uh, we'll have to see. The the DUP have certainly shown themselves in the past to be unconcerned uh, about what you know the Irish government or the US government or the British government indeed would uh, would like to do. If they're going to agree this, they will agree it in their own uh, in their own good time. So I think there's a lot of working out as to what an actual light touch implementation of the protocol would actually look like before we have an idea of whether it would satisfy uh, the DUP or not. But that certainly seems to be the direction in which Dublin, Brussels and London are moving. I wonder whether there's one other element to this jigsaw, uh, Jack, listening to Pat there, because obviously, you know, all eyes will be on the DUP at some point. But, you know, the, the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom has not suddenly, you know, discovered sanity and been converted to sanity. There is still huge divisions within the parliamentary party and very strong views on everything to do with the post-Brexit settlement and the Northern Ireland Protocol in particular. So that, you know, that'll be an element too, particularly if the, if the DUP doesn't accept a deal. Look, I think that, you know, nothing in British politics in the last little while, whether it's um, the election of, of one or two prime ministers or, you know, the, the, the kick into touch of this particular issue for Otherwise, is gonna is gonna heal the uh, the deeply damaged edifice of the Conservative Party. But it does strike me that you know Sunak has uh, two arch Brexiteers in uh, in the Northern Ireland portfolios at the moment, in the the shape of Chris Eaton Harris and Steve Baker. So you know if they endorse uh, any 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 solution that can be found there, that may get them some way down the road, and and also that you know the the Conservative Party and that Sunak as as Prime Minister has has bigger fish to fry than than you know just arriving at a at a, a version of the protocol agreement that keeps unionism happy. That that doesn't make that any less important, but I, I think it is probably not concentrating minds in London. Um, and what is more likely to be concentrating minds uh, in London is the, uh, the 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 need to get to the least worst, uh, least economically damaging version of what might be available, given the the massive headwinds that the the UK economy is facing at the moment. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent that this ma- this message would would translate across to, to died in the wall Brexit here is, but certainly if uh, the Labour Party in the UK could um, make the argument to middle ground voters that uh, the Sunak government had wantonly inflicted more pain through the way it prosecuted its case over the protocol or over the negotiations with Brussels, that could be damaging uh, if they'd added more, yet more misery onto the, uh, the pre-existing misery that was left behind by Liz Truss then I think that would do them no favours as and when uh, an election comes or in the, the political cut and thrust that we'll see in between. Stick with us, we're going to take a quick break, but after that we'll be back and we'll be discussing the US midterm elections and tech apocalypse. Welcome back. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jack and Pat are still here with me. Uh, Jack, you've been covering the ructions going on in the tech industry, a really vital industry for um, for Ireland over the last while. For a while there, um, earlier this week, I was Hugh Linehan official on Twitter, and then I was no longer Hugh Linehan official. And I get the impression that I, I have this vision of Elon Musk wandering around an empty building somewhere, pushing buttons to see what this thing does and what that thing does. Uh, it's It's been... A remarkable spectacle over the last while, but in a way, it's just been the colourful front end of something much more profound that's happening to uh, to big tech uh, on the stock markets and indeed, uh, indeed, in employment numbers. Yeah, he's kind of like the cat in the hat, isn't he? Like I'm <laughs> reading that book to my daughters recently. It's like this kind of like vaguely malign presence who gets in and just starts causing lots of trouble. Um, and that means that you can dismiss to a certain extent what's happening with. 
Twitter um, because it's what uh, people in the FDI industry kind of call um, and people in around the IDA call a company-specific factor. Uh, and you can talk a little bit about Facebook slash Meta in the same context because obviously they grew so rapidly during the uh, during the period of COVID and then they're really leveraged into this kind of slightly barmy idea that everyone wants to live in, in the metaverse now. But like the more that you offer company specific exemptions for, you know, multiple companies that are coming forward with the same problem, the more you realize that this may not be company specific in any way, shape or form and that it is actually something that is is, is more um, generalized across the tech sector. And that obviously would be a, a big issue for Ireland. And it is something that the government here is uh, deeply concerned about, very angry about last week as well. And I think you saw a kind of backlash from uh, from Fine Gael in particular, who obviously would be seen as, you know, the party that is kind of uh, closest to the multinational sector and, and more, most broadly uh, pro-investment and pro-enterprise in its stance. Uh, I, I was particularly struck by Eamir Higgins on uh, uh, Drive Time last Friday, who was reading the riot act to them and is obviously a running mate of of Leo Varadkar's. Um, but since then, they've they've been trying to kind of uh, pour a bit of oil in the water, say, you know, don't panic. Other parts of the multinational sector are uh, running very strong. You know, the tech is not the entirety of the multinational sector. And all, all that is true. But nonetheless, I think that they'll be very concerned. And we don't need to run through at length the reasons why. Corporation tax risk, concentration risk, uh, payroll and all the rest of it. But I think more fundamentally, there's a, a question there of, you know, how roadworthy the Irish industrial policy or the Irish investment policy model is for a world in which FDI may be kind of retranching. Um, and, you know, whether this is yet another shock or a small shock to go into all the other ones that we've had over the last couple of years, ranging back to COVID, but more generally speaking, in the last kind of year, 18 months, a reorganization of the way in which the world is globalized. And Ireland, as a particularly open economy, would in turn be open to any uh, reorganization of that order. And that's something that Pascal Donoghue was flagging in a speech that he made in June to the ESRI and was talking about these these trends. Um, he didn't flag anything about the tech sector or FDI at the time, but it was, you know, one of several issues now that gets thrown in on, cross, uh, on top of inflation and the war in Ukraine and, you know, fossil fuels and, and, and all these different kind of shocks, as I said, um, that really make for what could be a pretty fundamental uh, challenge for the government. And I think that all eyes will be on the publication of the White Paper on Enterprise, which is due to come before the changeover and is probably going to be one of the last acts of Lever Edgar while he is in uh, his current brief in the Department of Enterprise. And the question will be whether we can kind of adjust the model or trim the sales in a way that keeps the, the, the flows of FDI coming in because they have obviously become so important. Because if there is a real retrenchment, if there is, you know, some kind of a bubble, bubble bursting here, Pat, it might throw into much starker relief the disadvantages of investing in Ireland as opposed to certain other countries. And we know what those are. There's serious infrastructural deficits. There's worries about um, security of energy supply. There is issues with water. And on top of the list, there is massive is issues for, for employees of, of these companies in housing. And, you know, those things come into play a bit more if redundancies are happening across the globe. True, but I was talking to um, somebody whose business is, uh, is property about this last weekend and who observed that actually if 6,000 Googlers buggered off, then, you know, it would free up a lot of apartments down in the Docklands uh, for, uh, for people, for, for other people. But um, I, I, I think, you know, the sort of sense I get from, um, from government circles about this is, amplifies everything that that 
that Jack just said, particularly a certain degree of crossness uh, about the fact that I think people in government weren't sufficiently kept in the loop as the, to the extent that they would like uh, about this. But it, I don't think there is panic about an economic model going off, uh, going off the rails. I don't pick that up at all. But what I do get is a sort of a sense that this period, this year, last year, year two before that maybe, of these really bumper corporation tax revenues, which are what have dug us out of the the COVID hole, at least as far as the public finances go, that that era might come to a pretty shuddering halt uh, next year. So... I, I think that the problem that that would present for the government, I mean, it wouldn't be a massive economic downturn or anything like that. What it would just be is that this sort of end of year bonus from the tech, uh, the tech sector corporation tax results, which, which uh, corporation tax returns, which has been the difference between the country being in deficit, not a massive deficit, but uh, it has been the difference between you know a small deficit. And a big surplus. And it's that big surplus that government has budgeted for this year and next year, which has given them, uh, you know, that sort of comfortable cushion and the political, not just the, uh, not you know, not just an economic and, and fiscal cushion, but the firepower to do all those things in the budget, the giveaway, the 11 billion euro that was given away in the budget, that would be a lot more difficult if you didn't have bumper corporation tax revenues. And it is that that is, you know, offering this sort of political cushion to the government uh, at the moment. So if those corporation tax revenues do come to a halt next year, not in, you know, not, not that they're going to fall away completely, it's about 20 billion or so that they're going to raise from corporation tax this year. But if that fell away by four or five billion, all of a sudden, the public finances uh, look uh, look different. And you have uh, a set of quite trickier decisions than for government when it's framing its budgetary policy next year. And, you know, to an extent, this government has overcome every political problem by throwing money at it. If that money is no longer there to be thrown at it, then political problems become an awful lot more difficult, I think. Now, the US midterms happened this week. We had Martin Wall with us for his overnight report as, as the results were coming in on, on Wednesday night, Wednesday morning. They always throw up a lot of interesting stories, lots of debates going on about the polls, which largely were correct, I think. But there's some interesting stuff going on in the background, which if you haven't listened to Martin, listen back to him. He has some interesting points points about those. And we should say it's still ongoing, but it seems pretty clear that the Republicans have done much worse than uh, than was expected and the Democrats have done considerably better. They seem to be odds on to retain the Senate at the moment. And the Republicans who will probably get a majority in the House of Representatives will be stuck with a very small majority, which raises all kinds of interesting questions. But maybe, Jack, the the, the most significant one is the impact already within the Republican Party itself. And uh, to my eyes, anyway, a sense that that party or the the many people in that party who would like nothing more than to get rid of Donald Trump see their opportunity there now. I was looking at the New York Post's front page today. There's a big picture of Humpty Trumpty and basically blaming him for the uh, for the result. What do you think? Oh my God, first the cat in the hat, now Humpty Trumpty, Jesus. Um, 
Yes, I think that's true. I think that, uh, you know, one of the clear takeaways from uh, the, the midterm results is that, you know, the, the endorsement of Donald Trump, while it may galvanize his base massively, it doesn't seem to um, to transfer into, into electoral success. And against that, you have, uh, in quite sharp relief, the um, the massive electoral success uh, of Ron DeSantis in, uh, in Florida and the, the success of the Republican uh, slate, I suppose. I think it's more or less across the board in Florida. Like they kind of turned it fairly deep red, and it's usually a state that's kind of in play. Um, and there's there's implications uh, for that for the kind of Hispanic vote, which is, is seen as a particularly key constituency uh, in in both midterm and, and general elections. Um, and I don't know a huge amount about the, the brand of Republicanism that Ron DeSantis uh, preaches, but I suppose that what matters is is that it's different from Trumpism, and and you know, it, for, I I suppose to an extent, kind of offers an alternative for mainstream Republicans um, who, you know, would support Trump, but don't kind of swear fealty to him in the way that the kind of the, the Trump fan base who, who idolizes him almost as a kind of God King type of figure do. Um, but I'm not sure that it solves for the Republican Party any of the any of the big questions for them, because um, like if Trump is sidelined by this or if he, you know, decides to run in a primary and then loses to DeSantis. And again, I think there's a, there's a question over whether he's more electable in a primary than he is in a general, but let's say he does do that. And the runoff is between DeSantis or another more mainstream Republican and the Democrats. I mean, because of the way electoral politics is constituted in the United States at the moment, where a small number of voters within a small number of swing states can really decide a huge amount about where power lies for a long time. Um, you know, if Trump were to hurl from the ditch on the sidelines and to effectively tell his voters to to, to stay home, um, that could have a massive downstream effect on, on turnout and how electable Republicans are and how successful the Republican presidential candidate is in, uh, in, in swing states. So, you know, I don't think that this solves anything for the Republican Party. And I think it may actually complicate things uh, further. And I suppose the, the surprise is that, you know, we're not talking about a swing to either either side, we're talking about you know the the the, the success of 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 kind of I suppose a, a kind of mainstream element within American politics and uh, the fact as well that the economy doesn't seem to have really been much of a factor or as much of a factor as people were predicting, and that actually one of the organizing factors was something that people said at the time would be important, then decided wouldn't be important, but it turns to turns out to have gotten a lot of voters out, which was um which was abortion. Uh, which again kind of plays this theory within uh, politics in a lot of advanced democracies, maybe less so in Ireland, but that, you know, voters are more mobilized and more energized by values-based issues as opposed to quality of life issues or service provision issues that might traditionally have dictated voter choice. What do you think, Pat? Yeah, they're the two takeaways, actually, that I've identified from it. Um, one is, I think this is, you know, I think it's a disaster for Republicans. Um, you know, Trump is basically now a busted flush amongst the electorate, but not amongst, you know, Republican Party members. And they're the guys who will be voting in uh, in the primaries, um, assuming that, that, that Trump does run. I think this election demonstrates now that it is, it's not impossible, but it is very, very difficult to envisage Trump winning the presidency. It is possible to see him winning the nomination, but very difficult to see him winning the presidency in uh, in in twenty twenty four. And that's not something that I would have said uh, before uh, before these elections. And I think you have the prospect now of 
a split within the Republican Party between the Trumpers and the non-Trumpers, which could spend the next 18 months tearing the party apart. Now, of course, you know, parties, you know, tend to reunify for the general election, uh, of course. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think the Republican Party is in a very difficult position now. And, you know, the appeal of Donald Trump to its grassroots is remains very significant. But he's a toxic figure amongst the centrist voters where nearly all elections uh, uh, everywhere uh, are, are won. And that's something that Republican Party simply can't ignore. Um, uh, the other thing then, uh, as Jack also mentioned, uh, is the emergence of abortion as a wedge political issue. And um, I think this is... I think it's really interesting. In fact, we spoke about it with Martin when we were uh, uh, when we were talking on this podcast in the um, in the wake of the Roe versus Wade uh, decision. We talked about it, how we thought at that stage that it could become a significant factor in the midterms, and uh, that was, of course, with our with our usual prescience. the The thing about it is, of course, it's it's not going to disappear uh, in 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 two years' time. You know, um, it's still going to be a, a political issue, and I think a motivating issue for many of those middle ground voters, particularly suburban women, um, that w- it appears were very uh, were very exercised by it on on this occasion. Um, all, you know, all in all, taking those those two takeaways into account, uh, I, I think that the prospects for the Democrats holding the White House in 2024 have just become immeasurably better. All right. We'll definitely be covering that and continue to cover it over the next while. Well, I think Donald Trump is currently scheduled to make an announcement about his his intentions next week, although I gather there's quite a lot of pressure coming onto him not to do that or to, to defer that. Anyway, before we wrap it up, we want to, we always like to have a look at articles which have taken our attention in the Irish Times over the last week or so. Pat, what, did, what were you reading? Yeah, I picked. Um, I, I thought we, you know, lots of really good coverage um, of of COP, which we haven't had time to talk about. Also, um, lots of great coverage by uh, Martin Wall uh, from the midterms. But the piece I uh, picked was uh, Stephen Collins's column in uh, in the paper today, where he's lots of uh, well informed speculation about the uh, prospects for the forthcoming reshuffle, and I picked that. Because uh, I think um, the changeover in government, which happens in just over a month's time, and the associated reshuffle is going to be something that uh, occupies uh, our, uh, our 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 thoughts and speculations and inquiries on the political team for um, for much of the fourth uh, more much of the forthcoming weeks. So I thought Stephen's piece today was a useful jumping off point for that. And spoiler alert, he only really mentions one head on a potential chopping block. Yeah, he uh, he suggests that if there is to be um, uh, anybody defenestrated or decapitated, that uh, his his view is that it could be uh, Mr. Health, Stephen Donnelly. And um, my, my, my own speculations on, uh, on the matter would not contradict uh, that, uh, that assertion. But um, I think uh, lots more chin stroking to come on that, I think. That's, that's very interesting. Jack, what have you been reading? Uh, I'll go totally off diary and, and millions of miles away from Irish politics. And I'm probably uh, as far as one can get while staying within the Irish Times correspondences uh, and, and cite Dennis Staunton's letter from Beijing 
this week uh, in today's paper and Friday's paper, uh, which is all about just crossing a street in Beijing and how difficult it is. And it's just it's a it's a it's a lovely piece of writing, first of all, and it's it's a great example of you know what makes foreign correspondency great because he's he's describing what is actually a fairly banal thing but manages to get to a lot of to, to get to the core of a lot of what is different and interesting and you know energizing about China and just makes it into a really a really interesting piece and it's you know Dennis's London letters were one of my favorite things in the paper for a long time and he made what is like ultimately a familiar place to a lot of Irish people seem kind of novel and interesting now he's making a very unfamiliar place seem kind of very human. So anyway, that's my that's my very non political uh, choice. Yeah, for, we're, for giving, a piece of the we're week. giving Dennis way too much love on Dennis this is getting podcast. one every week. He got, I think I we're going to last week. week, and I think I picked him the week before. So uh, I think um, I think we'll have to have a Dennis embargo for the next couple of weeks. I hereby impose the Dennis Daunton embargo for, um, <laughs> for for the next few weeks. But anyway, and my my piece is um, is on a subject which we covered on this podcast um, last week with with Owen O'Dell, which is the impending legislation on on hate crime and and hate speech and it's a piece by uh, two academics uh, Amanda Hines and Jennifer Schwepp. Well, we, my conversation with Owen O'Dell we focused largely on the speech elements of it the kind of implicit understanding that the hate crime parts of it were, 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 were more straightforward but they raise issues about what's called the demonstration test part of the legislation when it comes to hate crime and really essentially and I'm obviously clearly not a legal expert Don't let that stop you. They, no well that's true they, they seem to suggest that the, that, that the wording is is too vague uh, and that that is storing up problems for the future. I, I sort of feel that this legislation could be problematic. You know, it's quite technical in some ways, but it, it feeds into certain culture war narratives and people, you know, a range of people have a range of, you know, quite legitimate concerns about it. So that's uh, worth reading on this week's opinion pages. We are going to leave it there um, for uh, relaxing and heading for the weekend. Pat uh, and Jack, have a great weekend. You too, Hugh. You too, Hugh. And thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back very soon indeed, actually. But uh, until we pop up again on your feed, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.